Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Tread victoriously. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Ned Bacon. Anybody who's been around the four-wheel drive industry or as an enthusiast should know about Ned at least... uh, you know, prior to 2010, um, he's uh, kind of quiet on the off-road front nowadays, but we're going to get into all of that. Ned was a, a, one of the original competitors into rock crawling and made a mark early and wheeled with some of the greatest off-road legends there are. So, Ned, thank you for coming on board and spending some time, and uh, let's have a conversation. Oh, thank you, Rich. It's great to be here. It's a, it's an honor to uh, be asked to do this. So let's uh, let's talk about you know your beginnings and uh, where did that all start? <laughs> well, I was uh, born in uh, Reno, Nevada, but um, my family. I grew up on a cattle ranch in the Carson Valley, which is about fifty miles south of Reno, little towns of Minden and Gardnerville, which aren't so little anymore. But um, they've sort of grown together. But I'm, I still live in that area. Uh, I've been all over the world and traveled quite a bit. But I always seem to come back to this area and, and have always called it my home. You know, there's something about that. I'll never go back to where I was born and raised. And that's the San Francisco Bay Area on the peninsula. <laughs> it's just way too crowded for me. Don't blame you for that. <laughs> you know, I, I had no choice in where I was born. <laughs> you no, might say, but it was none a it was too. a great life when I was young. You know, it was a great area sure. living near parks and stuff. But you know, you were you grew up pretty rural. So let's talk about those early years. Um, sure. You know what what you guys do? Well, growing up on a ranch, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, I had uh, four hundred acres of of country to just tear up. <laughs> and, uh, learned how to do so at an early age also was right up against the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of trails and, and roads and hiking and, and stuff to fool around on up in there too, that I discovered at an early age and Lake Tahoe's right over the, right over the ridge there. So all, all of that is very close to the East. I had, uh, the Nevada desert that spread spreads out, um, forever. Yes. <laughs> you can pretty much still <laughs> drive all the way from home to uh, the Utah border without touching pavement other than crossing a few of them. And I've done that several times. 
so uh, yeah, it was just a wonderful playground. And uh, of course, being on a ranch, uh, lots of mechanized things to learn about at an early age. And uh, I definitely indulged in it. I, um, I've been a gearhead and a car nut as long as I can remember. And uh, my dad uh, was also a car guy, a uh, collector more than anything else. He amassed a pretty large antique car collection during his lifetime. And um, he was not mechanical. I don't think he knew which way to spin a wrench, but he knew a lot of the uh, histories and things about uh, various automobiles. And I spent a lot of time scouring the country with him as, at a very early age, early 60s, looking in barns and people's backyards and dragging old pre-war cars home on trailers and uh, watching him build his collection. But um, I definitely had more of an interest in uh, how things worked and how to take them apart. Right. <laughs> so at that really early on. So l- let me let me ask a couple of questions about the car collection. So he was just amassing cars, and was he flipping them or just like keeping them as a museum? Uh, keeping a lot of them. When he passed away in 2010, he had 116. Wow. And uh, I've still got about 80 of them that I'm maintaining today. And they're they're all in a formal museum type setting nowadays, uh, but it's by private uh, appointment only. I do a lot of car clubs and people coming through and personal people that get, gather a group of friends and ask for a tour and I'll give a personal tour. I've done no oh, four or five of them this month already. Um, so yeah, that's, that was something I grew up around uh, there. He mainly focused on really early stuff, 1910 to 1930. Nice. Which is still what the, the core of the collection is. And uh, so, yeah, he, he was a car guy. He was very knowledgeable of, of the early stuff. He was a judge at the Pebble Beach Concours for about oh, wow. 39 years. Um, was very involved in all of that. And uh, so it was it was kind of a, a side-by-side show with me. He never understood my off-roading interests or my sports car racing interests, which we'll get into. But uh he was always doing his his car shows and his car club stuff and that kind of thing. And uh, we we intermixed sometimes, but not uh, not all the time. <laughs> so so when you say you liked you know figuring out how the mechanical end of it worked, did he let you? do that on those cars or did you have to get other things to work? Never. On? <laughs> <laughs> I was never allowed to touch him, which was probably a good thing. Um, in fact, he never even let me drive one until probably 2008. Wow. I think it was the first time. And most of them had been dormant for many years in, in this museum type setting. And late in his life, he got lured by various friends of his to get some cars out and take them on tours again, which was something he did a lot in the fifties and early sixties. And, uh, by that point he really couldn't physically drive them anymore. And so he came to me and asked if I would, uh, drive the cars for him and we'd do do this together. And we had three pretty magical years of, of using them at the very end there when, uh, and I actually got to drive them and work on them and get them running. And some of them hadn't been running and, 50 plus years oh that's awesome that was interesting but yeah growing up around them um 
I've given tours and things since the eighties, probably, um, maybe earlier. I knew all the stories and, and knew the backgrounds on a lot of them, but, uh, as far as tinkering with them or getting one out and driving it, uh, I, I was on my own. <laughs> what did you start building and taking apart first? The toaster, the vacuum, um, um, you know, the tractor? Well, <laughs> let's see. Uh, going way back. I guess the first things I took apart were bicycles and stuff yep. like that. I got my first real bicycle I can remember in 1965, and it was a, a Schwinn Typhoon. And we actually had to go order it from the hardware store, the local hardware store, which had a Schwinn franchise. And I had to wait months for it to show up. I ordered it out of a catalog. And uh, it I wanted a Stingray in the worst way. And they had just come out. And my parents uh, said, oh, those are just a fad. You can't, you can't get one of those. You need a real bicycle with <laughs> balloon tires. So I got a black Schwinn Typhoon. And... Um, I think the first thing I did was take the fenders off of it and strip it down. And uh, so I would have been, uh, you know, eight years old, seven, eight years old, something like that. So I remember fooling around with bicycles and such. And um, then uh, that morphed into, I would, you know, I never really was allowed to tinker or anything with ranch equipment, although you always tinker with ranch equipment because it always breaks. So as I grew older and, and got to learn how to use farm equipment, farm tractors and, and balers and swathers and that type of stuff, they're always breaking. So you definitely learn how to uh, wrench on those things at a pretty early age. But right. uh, the from the bicycles, um, not to get ahead of myself, but I was never allowed to have a motorcycle. And some of the... Uh, the foreman's kids, our foreman in the 60s had three boys, and uh, they, we all grew up together, and they all were allowed to have motorcycles, and I was definitely felt left out on that one. And uh, we used to ride their motorcycles around, but I was, unbeknownst to my parents, I was out riding their motorcycles, but I was never allowed to have one. But I did get a go-kart when I was maybe nine or 10 that uh, didn't have an engine, and uh, probably was the first go-kart ever built. <laughs> it was pretty crude. And uh, I traded it for, uh, this is dating me, you remember the Cox uh, airplane, the little um, 049 Cox planes, and then they came out with a Myers-Manx dune buggy and a Baja bug kit that had the same engine. And I traded one of those Baja bug Cox toys for this go-kart frame. And... Uh, <laughs> Then I found a lawnmower engine and a, a, a castaway lawnmower in the barn and uh, figured out how to graft that onto this thing. I got one of the ranch hands to help weld it on there and uh, finally got the thing going and it never had any brakes. It didn't have a clutch. It had a direct chain to the rear axle and you had to start it on a block and kick it off the block and chase after it and jump in it and go tearing <laughs> around. I think I'd have been way safer on a motorcycle, <laughs> but uh, I ran the heck out of that thing and in the only pavement on the ranch, which was my parents' driveway, but I could do pretty good figure eights. And eventually I ran out of talent and ran into a, a brick wall with it and uh, pretty much folded it in half on myself and came away with just some scrapes and bruises. But that was my first foyer into something motorized that was mine. And, uh, 
then from there, um, well, I got my first car, but let's let's wait before that because um, I I can remember uh, the first thing I ever drove was a Ford 8N tractor, and I don't know if you could call that a drive. I remember sitting on my dad's lap, and I couldn't have been more than eight. And we were out in a field, and he let me steer it and work the throttle. And I was uh, told to drive around all the cow pies in the field. <laughs> and I, I could just remember the connection between my brain and the steering wheel and guiding this machine around obstacles. And, uh, and it, it just fascinated me at an early age that you could, uh, you know, manipulate this machine and pick a line and go around these things and take it where you wanted it to go and that just clicked with me really early on i still remember that and uh then from there we had an old 48 dodge one ton truck on the ranch that was kind of the most beat up truck on the ranch and i i sort of graduated to being allowed to drive that around and i remember putting wooden blocks on the clutch and the brake and the throttle with uh, bailing wire, which back when you had real bailing wire, not twine, so that I could reach the pedals. Right. And, and I was only allowed to uh, drive it in first gear, which was granny gear. And it was non-synchromish. So I remember learning how to, well, I learned how to double clutch when I wasn't supposed to be because I obviously get it out of first gear any chance I could. But right. Especially uh, when nobody was looking. <laughs> exactly. But I think that poor old Flathead 6 saw more high RPMs in first gear than any other <laughs> old Mopar 6. <laughs> but uh, so I drove that thing around a bit and kind of cut my teeth with that. And um, then, of course, by then I was driving tractors and learning how to work tractors. And another thing I remember vividly, and I couldn't have been more than eh, 10, 11, really pretty darn young. But I was I was allowed to go out and clear this this not really a field we were making it into a field and it was a lot of brush and and uh, weeds and such and I was out on a on a fairly stout tractor towing a, a drag behind it and kind of knocking down all this brush and um, I can remember the first time it got bogged down pulling you know this heavy load behind it and uh it, you know the right front right right rear wheel would start spinning and then i would stomp down on the uh locker which a lot of tractors have mechanical lockers but right. you have to stick on a pedal to uh get them to engage and i can remember the first time you know i had i was struggling with one wheel drive and stepping on that pedal and the other wheel would kick in and the thing would lunge forward and both tires would spin and wow is that a cool feeling that was that was, <laughs> that was better than uh, the steering around the cow pies and uh, so at a really young age i i got it with the traction and the uh you know the steering and the picking a line and maneuvering things so had a lot of good practice at that long before i had a driver's license awesome I'm kind of thinking what came next at that period. I guess my first car would be the most important thing next. Right. <laughs> After I totaled the uh, go-kart and uh, was pretty proficient with tractors and farm equipment, I discovered this old uh, Renault 4CV, which was a little rear-engine car, similar to a VW but smaller, 
with a they had like a 750 cc inline four banger in the back of them so they were a transaxle type car flanch um scary and uh i managed to get it for 25 dollars. wow and uh, it was abandoned behind this factory in town and uh i remember my dad said if you want that car you need to go talk to the owner of this company and and get it away from him and i was terrified <laughs> i think i was about 12 and uh anyway i went in and, and met with the owner of this this company and asked him about his little car out back and uh he he rode me along for a little bit about it and then finally asked me how much money i had and i said i had 25 dollars, and he, we made a deal and uh my dad towed me home on a rope, and uh, I literally was sitting on a milk crate. It didn't have any seats in it. It didn't <laughs> have any brakes. Um, but we were, I was pretty good with a handbrake by that point because lots of ranch equipment never has a brake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty good at stopping. It did have a working handbrake. So uh, we made it home, and then I didn't know anything really about engines. And uh, I just learned by trial and error. And I think I was in seventh grade and uh, I just asked the uh, guys that worked on the ranch, asked anybody, you know, what do I need to do? How do, how do I get this thing to run? And well, first thing you need a battery. Oh, okay. Well then I need to earn a little more money working around the ranch here and go buy a battery. So I bought a six volt battery from the local Napa and, uh, got the thing to turn over and then it was like okay now what well does it have any spark well what's that okay so i learned about distributors and spark plugs and once we got it to have spark then it was uh now what um well you got to get fuel to this thing and so i learned about dirty fuel tanks and rotten fuel lines and fuel pumps and carburetors and how to take them apart it had a little tiny solex on it and I got really good at taking that thing apart. Anyway, I finally got the thing to run. It took me about four months. And uh, finally, the thing popped and fired up. And uh, it ran. I think it burned oil and it did gas. But uh, I was a terror. I mean, that was my car. And I could do anything I wanted with it. Not you know, I couldn't had to behave when I was in the ranch trucks and tractors and such. But... Every, everything was off limits with the with those, but with the Renault lookout. <laughs> so then I learned all about drifting around dirt corners and putting things on two wheels and sliding around and running through the ditches and ripping through the fields when they were being irrigated and they were wet and slick and learned a lot about car control in that little car, even with 25 horsepower. <laughs> anyway, so... Yeah, spent a lot of time ripping around in that. And then uh, I went on to VWs. I always had a thing for VWs from very early on. It was, of course, these were the Myers Manx days and the dune buggy craze and all that. So I were, think your, I had, were your Volkswagens like off road bugs or were they, you know, oh, yeah. street? Well, everything was off road because I was on a ranch and I didn't have a driver's license. Right. And I didn't have any money either. So they were all clapped out horrible things i i think my first quote-unquote dune buggy was a a 64 bug that had come from the midwest and was totally rusted out and i got it for 50 dollars. i do remember that and um it uh, i took the body off of it with 
a quarter inch drive socket set. <laughs> and, I, and I pretty much figured out that if I just tightened the bolts instead of trying to loosen them, they just broke off. And then I took the backhoe and lifted the body off and you know, probably bashed the body off and basically made a pan car out of that. And uh, with a support for the steering wheel, and a, I had an old gas tank off of a baler, I remember, that found in the barn, <laughs> bolted on behind the seat, and it had it had the old seats in it. It was an absolute death trap. And uh, I just tore up the place with that. I figured out how to jump things with it, and how I didn't kill myself in that, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> again, a motorcycle probably would have been safer. But, uh, yeah, I think I had four or five EWs before I ever had a driver's license. Oh, nice. What was the so, earliest? Um, earliest of all my early junk ones, uh, I had a 57 rag top that I got for 100 bucks. I had a 59 convertible that I got for 125 Wow. <laughs> and I had a single cab transporter, a 59 that I got for 175 these were all cars I had before I had a driver's license. And uh, the one that became the pan car was a 64. And, um, yeah, that there was also a, a 55 that I still own that is more, it was a family car that my dad actually bought it new in 55. It was the, the third bug ever sold in Reno. In oh, Nevada. Wow. And uh, it has a long history behind it. It was given to my mom. Um, to drive around and then she sold it in 64 and it got trashed by some local high school kids and then i found it abandoned out in the in the pine nuts east of here the pine nut mountains and i had a, a fellow friend's ranch his dad's place and we rescued it in about 68 and it was kind of a father-son project except like i said my dad wasn't mechanical so we decided to restore it and put it back to original and, but he sent it down to a friend of his in, in LA basically. And they re restored it basically. And, um, it was, it was kind of a joke cause it was so beat up. They were just like, you know, Bruce Myers is right down the street making fiberglass bodies. Why don't you guys just go that route? No, no, no. I want it restored back to original. And I don't know what he spent on it, but, um, we ended up with a really cherry, 55 oval window bug with sem4 trafficator turn signals and the whole bit and um anyway that car the deal always was when i turned 21 i could have it the title to it and so i've had that car forever and it's it's in perfect restored cherry original shape so that's awesome my my first car was a 53 or, ah. 50, or excuse me a 54 oval window because 53 oh, was cool. a split window 54 yep. was the first of the ovals and uh yep. my dad's best friend knew him as like an uncle he uh he sold me that car for 300 bucks mm. in 1972 okay i was a yeah, freshman about, so i was when all this was going on yeah we're yeah. about the same age man i love that car i wish i still had it uh yeah they're great and this this one's a is a peach. I mean, it's got its original 36 horse, original numbers matching, engine tranny, everything. Wow. And uh, still runs like a champ um, from when it was restored in the late, well, 69, I guess. That's when it really got restored. And, of course, I screwed around with it in my 20s and put a 2180 in it and a close ratio tranny and lowered it and 
did all kinds of stupid things, but then I grew up and, and put it back to stock and uh, it's been the <laughs> back to stock now for, you know, 30, 40 years. But anyway. That's awesome. But yeah, VWs have always been a part of my uh, repertoire. And then they, uh, that morphed into Porsches later on when I could afford them. But we'll get into that later, I guess. So let's, in school, you know, during this whole time, you're, you're living on a farm, your dad's collecting cars, you know, you're running around with, uh, with death traps, which, uh, <laughs> you know, was, was good. You, you're still alive. We, it's sometimes I amaze, I think back on things and I'm absolutely amazed I'm still alive. The, in school, were you, was school just something that you just couldn't wait to get done with and get back home or, you know, did yes. you play sports or do anything? You know, no, band sure. or, School was um, never my forte. I was never a student, and I was never really an athlete. Um, I was always sort of the scrawny, skinny kid. And um, I grew up with a lot of big, strapling farm boys and ranch boys and a lot of German stock. And uh, when it was time to play football or any kind of stick and ball sports, I was terrible. I, I could not dribble a basketball to save myself i couldn't hit a baseball wasn't big enough to handle football <laughs> get mowed <laughs> over hated those kind of sports um i excelled at skiing i became a very good skier and then you know, growing up around tahoe and stuff i was um pretty proficient at that at a pretty early age but um i had a there was a big um segue in my life and when I was 13, I got sent away to boarding school. And uh, I think my parents just, they didn't want me to grow up in this rural environment. They didn't want me in this little hick town to their way of seeing it, even though they loved living here. They had come from Southern California originally. And and my dad's uh, ranching life was something that he chose and, and uh, you know, did. But... Um, it wasn't something I don't think they wanted me to do. And it it, it drew a, a wedge between us at that at a, at a very early age that um, stayed with me, stayed with me my whole life. Um, right. I hated boarding school. It was an all boys boarding school in uh, the Santa Barbara area, a beautiful area, California. Um, but the guys I went to school with were mostly Californians, Southern Californians. They were surfers. They were stoners. They were uh, from wealthy families. And um, I never really clicked with a lot of them. And uh, I wanted to be in the mountains. I wanted to be on the ranch. I wanted my cars and uh, my toys. <laughs> and um, Couldn't have them down there. In fact, we weren't allowed to drive. We weren't allowed to own cars. Uh, there were no girls, um, which definitely set me back a pace, I feel. Um, and how many years were you in the boarding school? I did four years there, all of high school. Okay. And I begged and pleaded all sorts of ways to get out of it and uh, never never could sway my parents. And uh, it definitely put a, put a wedge there. But um, one thing I did manage to do, I mean, there was nobody at the school that was was car oriented, gearhead oriented whatsoever. And uh, I was I was miserable. They did allow uh, the guys there to have dirt bikes. 
if they were so inclined. And I think there were three or four guys in the entire school that were into dirt bikes. And there was an old barn on the property that uh, we could keep the dirt bikes in. And I persuaded my parents to let me take the Renault down to school as a working project just to keep me sane. <laughs> and I had to go through all sorts of hoops and things with the school to, to allow it. But um, it was a little car, and so they allowed it to fit in there with the dirt bikes in the barn shed. And uh, there was sort of a makeshift motocross course that was out in the back 40 of the school there. And the guys would ride their bikes around out there. And I used to rip around the motocross course in the Renault <laughs> town that poor thing. <laughs> But that was the uh, the first engine I ever rebuilt, like brand new from scratch. And that would have been not until my senior year of high school. I I definitely had bits and pieces of engines apart, but I'd never rebuilt one all the way from scratch. And we all had to have a senior project. And, uh, of course, every most of the guys in this school were brainiacs, and they were all going on to, you know, Ivy League schools and what have you. And uh, I decided for my uh, my school thesis thing, whatever I had to do, that I was going to rebuild an engine. And the school just didn't know what to do with me on that. They uh, they I think they found a professor that had maybe changed the oil in his car once, and so he was put in charge of uh, watching over me while I rebuilt this engine. <laughs> and I pretty much just did it on my own reading books and Chilton manuals and uh, got most of the parts from JC Whitney and uh, built this whole engine up, took all, hauled all the parts down to local machine shop and carpenteria and had the crank turned and, you know, had everything done. <laughs> and uh, that was my first engine rebuild. And um, when I graduated, I got, I drove it all the way home 500 miles back to Nevada, which was my big crowning achievement with my, fresh Renault engine. I well, think if it went you made it, you, I hope you got an A. <laughs> made it like it made it without a hitch. Nice. I think it went like 45 flat out. 45 <laughs> about all that car could do. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I actually, and by then I definitely um, had graduated on to better vehicles. Uh, the Renault just was something that got, you know, hauled down to the school and left down there for the, the three years. I didn't have it my freshman year, but the other three years it was down there. But meanwhile, um, you know, I'd had numerous bugs and then I got the four wheel drive bug. And um, I guess first, you know, I'd been around four buys. We always had four by four trucks on the ranch. We had a lot of scouts, which um, won't go into that. But, it's uh, farm equipment, you know, farm, yeah, it's farm like a equipment. Dodge truck, exactly. yeah. pretty much farm equipment. <laughs> and, um, but I got a, a hankering to get a Jeep, and uh, I guess I was a junior in high school. And I had thought about building a nice Baja bug instead of all the junk I had. And then it then it morphed into wanting to get a Jeep. And I looked at several of them. I looked at a flatty with a V6 in it, and I looked at a couple of CJ5s with V6s. And then I came across this 60 Willie CJ5 with a 283 Chevy in it. And uh, the price is right. And uh, I sold like four clapped out VWs and a 38 Chevy pickup that was really rough um, to buy this Jeep. And I remember it was 1400 bucks. And uh, 
that Jeep became the killer bee okay. and I still have it today. Nice. But I was, I was 17. And, um, so that was my first introduction to Jeeps and wheeling. And, uh, it was also an introduction into how you could break things with a Chevy V8 that didn't, uh, weren't, weren't designed to have that kind of power. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I broke, Oh gosh, I think 13 T90s trannies wow. before I before I upgraded the transmission and I don't even know how many data 25 front ends I went through but I got really proficient at doing ring and pinions and and uh twisted axles and you know all that stuff early on and uh T90s I think I get it done them in my sleep. <laughs> I break those all the time. So, um, yeah, that was the beginning of, of wheeling for me. And, and, uh, and what year was that about? Um, I got that, I got the, that Jeep in 1975. So I was a junior in high school, okay. so I could only use it in the summers, um, until I got, got out of my, uh, drudgery in boarding school. <laughs> anyway, when I got out of high school, I, all I wanted to do was come back to Nevada. And, uh, so, I enrolled in uh, UNR, University of Nevada, Reno, right. because I was sort of in a situation where it wasn't if you go to college, it was where you go to college, you know, coming out of a, a fancy boarding school. And I was, it was just expected that you're going to college. And I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, all I wanted to do was work on cars and live in the mountains and go wheeling, go camping, go hiking, be outdoors. Um, I also have an artistic knack, which, uh, we haven't touched on, but it goes way back. And, uh, so I had that going for me, but, uh, like I say, I wasn't really athletic or anything else. So coming back to UNR was, was more of an excuse to be back in the mountains, be near Tahoe, be able to ski, be able to go wheeling and, um, you know, also go to college quote unquote and, uh, appease my parents. So, so let's touch on this artistic. All what, right. What did you, um, what were you, what was your interest or what was your? Well, my interest was cars, 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 right. always cars. And I can go back to kindergarten days, pre-kindergarten. Um, my dad had lots of uh, magazines around and um, lots of car automotive magazines, and one collection in particular that stood out was. He had stacks and stacks of motor trend and um, he wasn't into hot rods. So we didn't have hot rod and he wasn't into foreign stuff. So we didn't have road and track, but he had motor trends dating back to the early fifties, all the way up through the sixties. And I remember scouring through those as a little kid and memorizing the look of every single American car made in the fifties, sixties, um, I could tell you not only the year, but the make, the model, everything. Of, and I still can to this day of everything made in this country all the way up through the 60s. And uh, I started drawing them. And my mom saved a lot of that stuff. I've got these drawings of, you know, like a 1958 Ford ranch wagon. And you look at these childhood drawings from a kid that's maybe five years old and it looks just like a 58 ford ranch wagon that's awesome <laughs> cool and they're and they're freehand they're not traces or anything that i took out of these magazines i would just look at these pictures and then draw them 
and uh, drew lots and lots of stuff like that that fortunately she saved and I have some of that and then uh, when I got into high school I did have some pretty I had a good art teacher at this boarding school who tried to push me towards painting and I did some pretty good interesting painting stuff but I never really liked it my favorite uh, you know genre whatever is uh, pen and ink and I, I just really liked fooling around with just pen and ink. And I really wanted to draw cars. And I was really good at drawing cars. And I could draw very good cartoonish cars. And there was an artist named Dave Deal. I think you may re- might remember him. Who did a lot of stuff um, automotively in a cartoon fashion. He did a lot of Volkswagen-based stuff. He did stuff for MG Mitten for all their ads back in the 60s. There were some models that were made like toy plastic models that were made off of his stuff he was i just really admired his work and i sort of you know followed that form that cartoonish you know great big tires and funny looking people driving them and out you know characterized automobiles so i did a lot of that um you know in grade school and then on up into high school so i always kind of had this thing in the back of my, you know, my tool toolbox as far as uh, being able to draw things, but uh, I didn't do a lot with it. I was more interested in hands-on working on stuff. Right. So, uh, um, so the college thing it went along. I, I went to class. I, I did this. I did all the 101 courses that you're required to do, but I, I drifted away from it rather quickly, and I wound up uh, getting part-time jobs. I uh, worked in a gas station and pumped gas and did grunt work for the mechanic on duty back. You remember when there were gas stations where there was a pump, <laughs> a gas jockey that pumped your gas and then check the oil, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, I remember. It was doing work and, and they always had a, a, a Toby around to, to uh, clean the greasy valve covers and the oil pans and the dirty brakes and this mess. So I did a lot of that. And then I morphed into a, a body shop and I worked in a body shop and learned some of that. I never really got into the whole painting stuff, but I learned, learned about, you know, body work and I learned about taking things apart and uh, had a lot of little odd jobs through school. And, uh, but I, and, and I did more and more of that and less and less of going to school. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I learned a lot. And uh, I also had a lot of other odd jobs. I had a summer job at Lake Tahoe taking engines apart from boats that had been sunk in the lake. And uh, they had mechanics on there to rebuild the, the engines, but they, they'll get on a boat that'll sink and it'll wind up down in the sand. And uh, especially if it turns upside down, the engines would get all full of sand and everything. And so they'd bring these boats up with this big derrick they had and then, so they had to go through the engine. So I was like the guy that pulled the pulled the engine out of the boat and then took it all apart and broke it all down. And then it then it went in to get cleaned up and rebuilt. So that was a summer job I had. And I delivered mail for the state one year. I had a lot of just weird, odd, odd jobs. And then uh, then I discovered this little ad in a travel magazine about crossing Africa in a four-wheel drive truck. And that just hit home. It was just like, I need to get out of here. I, I want to go see the world. I want to travel. 
and crossing Africa in a four by four just sounded like the bomb. And I remember it was $1,200. And I worked and worked and saved and saved and saved up enough to do this thing and the plus the airfare to get jo- to Johannesburg, South Africa. And in 1980, I took off on my own with a backpack and I went to Joburg and I met up with this cast of characters. I was the only American and um, it was a British run company called Encounter Overland. And um, I spent the next six months crossing Africa all the way to London from Joburg in this big old Bedford diesel truck. Wow. And uh, (laughs) it was an amazing adventure. And uh, there were 21 of us in this one big five-ton Bedford, four by four. And uh, we, it was the trip from hell in a lot of ways. It was supposed to take three months, and it ended up taking six, um, mainly because we had a lot of mechanical breakdowns and problems, including snapping the front axle in half in a ditch in uh, Lusaka, Zambia. And um, I think the highlight was blowing the rear end in the Republic of Central Africa, which uh, is um, near the Congo. It's sort of in the central part of the, of the continent, about the most remote spot we could have been in to uh, break an axle, or not an axle, but blew the diff, actually. And um, the driver of the truck, um, there was a hired, there was a driver that worked for the company that was in charge of the truck, and he did all the driving. And he was the only other one of our group that was really mechanical other than myself. And we waited for three and a half weeks in the deepest part of the African jungle, waiting for parts to be flown in, in a Cessna. And, um, we were at a, a non-denominational mission that we ended up camped at. And, uh, we literally had to go out with machetes and chop down the, uh, the runway when the plane came in the plane only came every other month with medical supplies to this little community and uh so we were able to radio out on a shortwave radio to nairobi kenya and uh, get these parts ordered out of england and uh we waited three weeks in the jungle until they flew them in and uh then brian and i had literally set this diff up with <laughs> nothing i mean we're talking a five-ton truck diff and fortunately, it did have adjuster rings for the for the backlash. But we we used a, a hacksaw blade and a spark plug feeler gauge to measure the backlash, and then we used uh, mustard as like an engineer's bluing to to get the pattern right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and, and it was in torrential rains. It was monsoon season. We were in our knees up to mud underneath this truck. And uh, crazy mosquito bites ended up getting malaria on this trip that probably came from that area. (laughs) But we got that diff together and we made it all the way to London with it. So uh, anyway, that was that was a fun mechanical story. But um, it it sparked it sparked a a travel bug in me that uh, I pursued heavily for the next, well, Almost 10 years, I guess, all through my 20s. Did you keep um, a journal on that? Uh... Um, I've got various journals from from different trips I took. There was there was a Canadian guy that I hit off with pretty well that was on that trip. And he uh, he was an iron worker. He worked up in, in the Yukon on a lot of big uh, 
dam projects and such. And he would save up all his pennies and then he would take off and go somewhere in the world. And I just, we clicked and we ended up going on a bunch of wild adventures together in the early eighties, um, all over the world, a lot of, uh, Southeast Asia and, uh, they did Australia and New Zealand and, um, gosh, when's Japan, the book coming out? I want, <laughs> I, I've, it's just all up there. It's all up there. <laughs> written a book on it, but we were just two vagabonds. And, you know, a lot of kids from Commonwealth countries, you know, in British backed countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, that's a thing that they did in their, in their early twenties, late teens. They'd only, a lot of them would take a year off from uni, they call it, or, or between high school and uni or before they went on to a career job. And, um, without going to college, they would take a year and travel around the world with a backpack. Right. And I, I tapped into this, this thing because all the people on this trip were mostly from Commonwealth countries. And uh, that's kind of what they were doing when they wound up in Africa on this truck. And uh, so Ian and I traipsed all over the place with the backpacks and no clue how we were getting home again, no money. Um, and I worked odd jobs fixing people's trucks and fixing cars and this and that all over the place just for room and board and food and just enough to get on down the road to the next spot. And uh, <laughs> did a lot of that all the way into my uh, well into my late 20s. And school, college kind of just went by the wayside. I was just traipsing around the world and doing interesting things. And um it was it was a vagabond lifestyle, and I, I would always come back here to regroup and to you know to Nevada, and um, find a find a, a real job for a while and do something else. It was always usually mechanically oriented, and then I would take off again and go do something crazy in some other part of the world. So I did this a bunch in the early '80s up until uh, um. Well, let's see. Are we? I'm. I'm trying to think if we're getting ahead of anything here. <laughs> what? What we? What did your parents think about these trips? Um, they were never. They never discouraged them. Okay. But I think they were still just wringing their hands with, "What are we going to do with this kid? He's <laughs> he's not. He's not going to be a doctor and a lawyer, and uh, all he wants to do is mess around with cars." And. Um, but they, they never my – my parents had traveled a lot, and so, you know, they were fairly worldly, and so they never discouraged it, which was great. And um, they didn't really support it either, so I was on my own to do that. But in, in hindsight, I admire them greatly for that too um, because I learned a lot about, uh, you know, how to finance my own things. And, and uh, you know, if you want something, you got to work for it. And um, – Coming from the family I did, which you can probably guess by now, I, I, you know, didn't necessarily have to work that hard for something, but nothing was ever given to me. And I really admire them for that. Um, I wanted a, an, a, I wanted this car or that tool or this or that. You, you go earn it. You, you work for it and you get it that way. Right. And it's not going to be given to you. And I, I've always appreciated that and admired that work ethic is is huge and um so yeah I, I wasn't accomplishing anything other than 
just having a great time and and uh seeing a lot of the world but um at the same time i was you know paying my own way and and uh you know fixing up a few cars along the way and helping people out i guess (laughs) right so let's see um eventually i got involved with a local gal um that had uh, she was a divorcee and she had two kids and uh so i remember being in nepal with ian and finally deciding you know i'm going to marry her and i'm going to take on this responsibility of this instant family and so i need to stop this lifestyle and i need to get a degree in something or i need to settle down and and have a career if i'm going to have a family and support them that's a and, big that's a big decision yeah and i remember i was on i was way up in the annapurna mountains in uh, nepal when this came and i and i remember contem- i guess when you get to really remote places in the world you end up having these epiphanies where you start really thinking about <laughs> Where the hell is this all going? And um, Ian was was getting to that point too. He'd met a gal, and he was going to settle down with her. And so um, those days were were numbered. And uh, so I uh, I decided, well, what what do you really want to do? And um, there were two things that stuck in my craw. One was I would really like to write for four wheel drive magazines. That was that was something that was in there. I don't know exactly where it came from, but I can remember sitting in a via Creek in Nepal camping and thinking of that. And then I, uh, or I just want to become a full fledged mechanic with an ASE degree. And, you know, that says, I know what I know and uh, learn all the little things I don't know. So go to school for that. So when I came back to the States, I actually went, made an appointment and went down and met Bill Sanders, who was the editor of Four Wheeler. And this would have been about 1985. Um, and I had a meeting with him in his office. And uh, I can't remember where the offices were, but it was pretty small little outfit in those days. And he asked me questions about my journalism background and uh, this and that. And I was just, uh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I wrote in high school. And um, <laughs> he pretty much told me, you need to go go to school and, and get a journalism degree. And pretty much just shut me down. <laughs> I went out of there feeling pretty dejected. And uh, so then I turned my sights on the mechanical, being a mechanic. And I, I wound up. Uh, first marrying the gal and um, then uh, who became my first wife, put it that way, (laughs) and um, moving to Phoenix, Arizona, to go to um, AAI, Arizona Automotive Institute, which which is the, in those days was a competition, the UTI, which I know is still going on there. And uh, so we, we settled down in a little track house in uh, glendale arizona and uh, i went to school in the mornings and she was a bank teller so she got a job at a bank and the kids went to school there and everything and um then i decided I, I really needed to have a job in the afternoon and you know keep supporting this whole thing i'd gotten myself into and um so i i remember i took the b I had the Killer B. We haven't talked much about all my various vehicles, but I guess we can get back around to that. Yeah. And the morphing of the 
of that Willie's through the years. But uh, I had it. I'd taken it down to Arizona. And um, I looked up in the phone book. Remember those? And uh, yes. <laughs> looked up every four-wheel drive shop in the, in the Phoenix area. And I jotted down the addresses. And I took off in the B. And I just drove around every single one of them. And put in a resume and met with the the powers that be at each one of them. And I was looking for a mechanics job. And uh, I told them, you know, if you want to see the kind of work I do, my my Jeep's out in the parking lot. And by then it was it was pretty tricked out for the for the day. And um, I got all the way over to Tempe, Arizona. And I went into a little shop over there called Republic Off-Road. And uh, I walked in and I went up to the counter and I met a guy named Rick Payway. <laughs> uh, Payway was the manager. He was not the owner. And uh, I gave him my little spiel and, you know, you want to look at my work, go out in the parking lot. And he actually went out and looked at it. And I think he was the first one that, and the only one that did. <laughs> and uh, he went out and crawled all over my Jeep, which... Uh, had a fiberglass flat fender body on it at that point and uh had a 350 chevy in it at that point and had an sm420 granny box and uh was still sporting the 25 in the front and a 44 in the back but um we can go into all that later but anyway he looked it over and he was it probably knowing rick like like i do now it probably wasn't exactly his cup of tea but he was very polite and uh told me that he would uh, get back with me and and I went away from there and he actually called me back about a week later and he said he didn't have a, any openings in the shop in the back but would I sell parts for him up front for a while until something opened up and he was in the process of buying the business at that point and so things were going to change and anyway so I went to work for Rick as a counter boy and this was of course before computers and and uh, we had to look everything up in the books and answer the phones all day long and try to beat out the price of the next guy down the street. But I learned a lot about marketing and selling things that way. And then eventually he did buy Republic Off-Road and uh, within the year and uh, things changed around in the shop in the back. And he hired a guy named Frank Ryan to be his main mechanic back there. Frank had a long history with four by fours and Jeeps in particular in the uh, Phoenix area. His brother uh, worked over at uh, Four Wheeler Supply in downtown. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but uh, anyway, uh, Frank became my mentor as far as all things gear related and, and Jeep related. And I, I uh, went to work under him in the back there, you know, for Rick and worked as a mechanic for Republic um up until the end of the 80s when i decided to move back home and uh my wife and i were never really that happy down there although we did meet a lot of really great people um, we joined the, the uh, phoenix four wheelers uh, four-wheel drive club which had a great the p4w ranch out in wickenburg which was just hundreds of miles of trails in the arizona desert and uh so i really cut my teeth on desert wheeling and meeting a lot of neat people. And of course, this was all before everything exploded with um, crazy modifications. This was old school jeeping still. And we were on, you know, Armstrong crew tracks and, you know, spring under and 
um, you know, a tight power lock was about your best locker unless you stepped up to Detroit and not too many did. Um, but anyway, I learned a lot about wheeling, learned a lot about Jeeps. I learned a lot, met a lot of really neat people. And, um, it was, it was all leading up to things that happened to me in the nineties. So, um, let's see. Then from there, we moved back up here to Nevada and, um, I started my own business, which was, uh, basically a mobile automotive repair shop. Um, I put all my tools and things in a truck and, uh, I traveled around and worked on people's vehicles, either in their driveways or their part place of work. And uh, also my, um, also in my own garage and driveway. So anyway, um, so I got, uh, got going on that and it was very lucrative i had i had weeks and weeks of work backed up and, uh, just a one-man show um mountain motors became my my little business and it, it worked out quite well and one of the guys that i i hooked up with was a vintage racing enthusiast that had two pretty prominent 50s and 60s um road racing cars and uh, he was up in the Reno area, but uh, <clears throat> he took a shine to my work and whatever and ended up employing me for whew, three to four days out of the week. And he would pay me to commute all the way up to his shop. And then he would take me to the races with him when he was racing. And I did all the work on his, his race cars. And it really got me enthused about um, vintage road racing. And by that time, I I'd, I had my first Porsche, which... Uh, was an old 356 that I bought that, that was completely a wreck and clapped out and I, I re had restored it in my free time and uh, decided to put that on the track and that's what where I sort of morphed into this hobby of uh, racing sports cars and stuff which uh, we can go into that whenever but um, anyhow uh, let's see the the marriage dissolved in about 91 or something like that and um i was you know busy 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 with my business and um not to get into the details but when when all the ugliness of this divorce shook out the uh, judge said hmm, i think your daughter whom i had a, a daughter with this gal by that point along with her two older kids and uh the judge said i think the daughter's better off with dad and I wound up with custody of a three-year-old. And so I instantly became Mr. Mom. Right. And, uh, that was a huge responsibility. And it wasn't something that I took lightly. And it wasn't something that worked very well with me dropping transmissions on my chest and, and having a, a three-year-old girl crawling around in the dirty shop. And uh, so I sort of said, gee, I've got to find a a way out of this and find another form of employment and by that point i had met um quite a few people in the magazine world um from various trips on the rubicon and this and that and this was you know late 80s early 90s 90 about 90 and one of the people i had met was john stewart who was uh the editor of four-wheeler at the time and another guy was tom moore and um, of course, Jimmy Nylon and uh, Rick and I were very close, good friends, even, you know, even though I'd left him 
as an employee, we continued to wheel together a lot. And um, he would come up here in the summers and we'd do the Rubicon every 4th of July. And I'd go down to Arizona for all the events and things that we've been doing together for the last several years when I lived down there. And uh, so we kept that that friendship going. And a lot of the other guys I'd met in Arizona, we, we would all get together at various points and go wheeling. Um, Tierra del Sol was another one that was always the season opener. We called it, and we'd all meet down there in the Salton Sea and go wheeling and show off our latest creations that we'd come up with. And um, so I guess that was when the whole uh, modification thing started getting crazy. Um, We started figuring out how to make more articulation and figured out how to get more. um, I'm I'm wavering away from my, my magazine morphing i was talking about but um anyway uh yeah we were we were fooling around with different ideas with leaf springs and different ideas with with traction i remember meeting uh tom moore and i think it was 89 on the rubicon and he had one of the very first arb air lockers for a dana 44 in the back of a a cj that was um, project dirt clod and uh, none of us had ever seen a, a locker like that. And they'd been, they'd been selling uh, ARBs over here for Toyotas, I think, for a year or two already. But um, ARB came out with this one for a 44. And, you know, of course, it was a major game changer. And uh, we watched that Jeep go through the Rubicon like we'd never seen anything go through the Rubicon. And um, so I made a point of reaching out to Jim Jackson and uh, I think I got one of the first, at least the first five ARVs in the country that was uh, for a 44 and put it in the B. And things started happening after that. Uh, we discovered uh, 35 inch tires and we discovered well, how much spring over would, cre- you know, increase your articulation. I had actually fooled around with spring over early in the early 80s. That was a thing that was being done up here in the Sierras long before it became, you know, common. But um, I remember I sprung over the bee again in like 1990 or something like that. And and then uh, all the guys came up from Arizona with their sprung under flatties and stuff. And, you know, I just ran circles around them with articulation and you know this arb locking diff and and uh bigger tires and then it just started and everybody would go home and start recreating something better and uh we we were we would meet up somewhere else and try to outdo each other and everybody had a different idea of how this how it should be done and it was it was a it was fun i mean we were just creating and cutting down old truck axles and making them narrower and and uh you know you break one thing you find something a little bit bigger and stronger and uh try that and uh we did a lot of crazy stupid stuff (laughs) (laughs) it uh it was fun and all in the early early 90s this was going on but anyway getting back to the the magazine morphing um so anyway, I'd met Tom, I'd met John, I'd met Jimmy, um, and now I suddenly was a Mr. Mom. And uh, so one of the things, I I reached out to 
John Stewart, because I had looked in, you know, road and track and car magazines, and they always had these fun little artistic drawings and things down in the corners of magazines, in the in the car magazines. And some of them were fairly prominent artists that did stuff for for these things, just to sort of jazz up the page. And uh, I asked John if he'd be at all interested in uh, in having you know a little artwork in the in the magazine and just to jazz it up, little off-road drawings and such, and this and that. And uh, he said, "No, I really don't have any room for something like that." But he said, "We have this uh, page in the back of the magazine called Cheap Tricks." And of course, I knew what Cheap Tricks was, and that was a a deal where uh, readers would uh, write in with some sort of cheap fix-it idea that they had come up with, and uh, you know, they'd describe it in a letter and then they would have somebody, you know, explain it and make a little column. And it was, it was usually like three of them, I think, to a page. And he said, we've had a, a graphic artist doing the uh, illos for the for these ideas, but he's gotten in trouble because he's been doing them for Peterson's as well or something. And he said, uh, you think you could draw drawings if I sent you these letters that we choose? And uh, could you illustrate what these people are talking about. And I said, eh, I think I can handle that. And uh, so that's how I started in the magazine industry, <laughs> was drawing cheap tricks, pillows. Nice. So, um, so yeah, John would send me these, these hand-picked letters that, that he would pick out or whatever, and then I would illustrate what these people were talking about. And uh, so I started doing that just in, in the evenings, free time while I was still running my business and working on cars during the day and taking care of my daughter. And uh, I draw these illos late into the night. And um, so that went along for a while and that worked pretty well. And then I got a call from Tom Moore and he was over with McMillan and Yee at off road. And he said, Hey, can you do some illos for us? He said, we kind of like what you're doing here. And I've, I've got this guy, Moses Ludell that is, uh, doing these tech articles for us, but uh, we'd like you to illustrate what he's talking about. And uh, I was like, okay, let's give that a shot. I don't have any kind of written contract or anything with uh, John. And John was general media in those days, which was uh, Penthouse. So we <laughs> pretty much were a nice write-off for Penthouse. So it was it was the golden days of, uh, of four-wheel drive magazine life. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a blank check. Because... Uh, um, especially a little later on when I started doing things with the staff and going on four wheeler, the year testing and all that kind of stuff. We, it was great in those early days, but, uh, so I started doing LOS for uh, Moses's work and, uh, was cranking out more and more and more. And of course it wasn't paying very well, but it was getting my foot in the door. And then Tom called me up one day and he said, hey, can you write anything? And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't, haven't really written anything since high school. But I went to this fancy high school and, you know, I had some pretty good English instructors. And uh, so he said, well, give it a crack. And uh, I said, well, I said, I, I don't even know how to type. And I, I don't have a typewriter and I don't have a computer. And not too many people did in those days. And um, he said, well. He says, write it out to me longhand, and I'll take care of it. And uh, so I did my first article, and I, I can't really remember what it was. I, I remember I did 
one of my very first ones was on the Jeep Eater uh, transfer case conversion for Toyotas. And uh, Chris Collard had one in his Hilux. And uh, this was before Marlin ran with it. And uh, the whole idea had come out of Iceland. And uh, there was a little company in Sacramento that was making these things called JP Eater. And uh, I remember this. Basically, the same idea as putting a you know second low range box in a up against a Toyota truck transfer case, and that was one of my very first articles. And I also did one on a YJ with uh, some off the shelf um, lift kit spring thing. Can't even remember the brand of it, but um, that these those articles sent me on my way and that would have been with uh with tom at off-road first and i literally sent him my first three or four articles longhand and uh, he, he said you know you're pretty good I, I i'm not really having to edit your work very much and your your photography's good and you articulate and you know what you're talking about so we really got to learn how to type or at least get a computer <laughs> he says this is killing me translating all this longhand <laughs> and uh, so i bought my first computer used from some gal that had a computer school in town and um then i don't even remember how it i morphed over into uh four-wheeler but it wasn't long after that that uh, i started writing for john as well and uh then from there it went to phil howell and uh pretty much all of them except uh except peterson because that was sort of the most direct competition to four-wheeler so that we couldn't do that and um but i i was just lucky i was in the right place at the right time and i brought something to the table that i don't think too many others had at that point which was i could write and you know be articulate about what I was talking about and do a concise form, but I could also photograph because I had an artistic eye and I knew a bit about shooting pictures from all my travels and such, and I could rent. And um, a lot of the guys couldn't do one or two or all three of those things. You know, they, they could write really well, but they didn't know how to work on them. So they'd have to go they'd have to take the project to a shop and then, you know, maybe they'd have another photographer along to take a picture of it and the work that was being done. So I managed to just be in the right place at the right time and carve this niche for myself where I could work freelance for them and do it all. And, uh, it just, it just went from there and I uh, did it for 20 something years. And, um, you know, got to know a lot of the great guys in the industry and got to work alongside them um, with, uh, you know, like four wheel of the year type stuff and this and that. And then, of course, uh, Top Truck came along. That was, uh, I think, 93 was the first Top Truck. Jimmy Nyland and I went down to Hollister Hills in, uh, I think it was in 92. It might have been early 93. And checked out the uh, the property to see if it would work for this idea that Jimmy had come up with and it had spawned from something that Carcraft was doing. And um, so we pulled off the first uh, top truck challenge in 93 and uh, 
I remember it was like a lot of Indians running around with no chief. <laughs> and we, we had, we had uh, like, I think there were 12 competitors right off, right out of the gate. So we had these people that come from all over the country and brought their rigs and, and their families and friends and everything. And, and we were just bumbling around <laughs> how to put this, put this thing together and pull it off. And it was just bugging the heck out of me. And uh, so I just sort of took over and started barking orders and, and telling everybody how to run this thing and how to do it. And I ended up with a nickname, a sheepdog. But I also wound up the next year being the chief engineer and judge and everything for all the engineering and laying out the courses and everything else and that was something i did for four-wheeler for 13 years i think and um, recruited a lot of my good friends and former competitors into that whole thing um geez you know we had tim hardy and uh randy ellis and shannon and uh of course payway was in on that and uh we were all just a, a bunch of cronies that got together and, and pulled that off every year. And uh, funny story, I mean, some of the, a lot of these guys, the Sonny Hoganer is another one. I met Sonny at the first, uh, I think he was in the first top truck. And um, but guys like uh, Randy and Shannon, little side story, they used to come to Republic Off Road when uh, they were in high school when I was working there. And so that's when I first met them. And they they would come in after school and buy parts or just hang around and drink beer because we'd let them drink beer. <laughs> and they were probably 17 or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, I got to know a lot of those guys way, way back. And uh, and just kind of rambling on that on that front. But um, so, all right, put me put me back on course here. Where should we go from here? Let's talk about the vehicles along the way besides the killer bee. I mean, you. Okay. You had to have something um, besides, besides oh, yeah. the five, yeah, but, yeah. So I got the B in '75, and um, it got painted yellow pretty quickly. It was red when I first got it, and uh, painted it yellow pretty early on. And um, I put a set of. I remember I got a set of True Tracks on 10 inch Kelsey Hayes solid steel wheels from Dick Cepec in uh 70 might have been 76 my first big tires and uh it just i remember this because uh cpec was still working out of his garage in uh god was it compton or somewhere down there he had a little paper newspaper um magazine like thing with his his baja proven part products in there and i remember four mounted balanced Armstrong True Tracks, which were 32s, on 10-inch wide by 15 Kelsey Hayes black steel wheels, shipped to Gardnerville, Nevada from L.A., $342. And uh, I remember because it was a big expense. <laughs> and I, I put those on the B, and then, of course, they rubbed. And so then I had to do springs, and so I, I think I had some Burbank springs that I put on it. Anyway, um, so the B started, it was my daily driver for two years, I think. And then I uh, finally bought my first new and real truck. 
and it, it was brand new and it was a 77 chevy step side four by four with a stick it was a scottsdale it was chocolate brown and uh bought it off the lot in, in south lake tahoe it was sitting on the lot brand new and it was a stripper and it was exactly what i wanted rubber mats wind up windows no air conditioning and uh, a little step side and it was the first thing i ever had to make payments on and uh i only kept it for two years because i couldn't stand the payments <laughs> <laughs> and uh i ended up selling it to a local rancher who still has it and it's it's still working a ranch here in town and uh, it's got probably half a million miles on it wow um anyway and i, I reverted back to the b and uh, I remember that same summer, I took my first trip to Baja with um, a couple old friends from my high school days, boarding school days, who were surfers. And we drove way deep into Baja to uh, La Parisima on a surfing trip. And, uh, of course, I was not into surfing, never was, but um, went down with them just for a lark. And uh, I was my first foyer into Baja on my own. And and I took the B on that. And I've been hooked on Baja ever since. And I couldn't tell you how many times I've been down there. But, uh, okay, back to vehicles. Um, so, of course, I, I started getting into this travel bug thing where I was gone a lot. And so I really didn't need, you know, that many vehicles. So the B was always there to fall back on. And then I, by then I turned 21, so I had the 55 bug as well. And um, those were kind of my two staples for quite a while. But then I bought <laughs> a Chevy Love, 4x4 Chevy Love in 1980. It was like a year old. And I ended up jacking that up and putting like 30s under it, which felt like 35s on a Love. And um, we beat the heck out of that truck. And I also built my first uh, off-road race car around that period of time which uh, first I'd help a couple of friends build a Baja bug, a class five car. And uh, they didn't know anything about VW. So I got recruited for that one. And we built that car and raced it in the Vora series up here in like 81, I think. So for 82, I decided to build my own race car. I started with another bug and had a class five. And then I raced that for a while. And then that morphed into a class two which uh, in those days, Class 2 Unlimited was like a two-seat buggy. And I started with a Chetwith sand frame and reinforced it and added more tubing and things into it and made a, a desert car out of that, so to speak. I remember we ran the first uh, Frontier 500, which was Vegas Torino, which was HDRA back in those days, and uh, went down to play with the big boys in Vegas and uh, – Got a real ass whipping. <laughs> we, we, we realized just how podunk we were up here when we went down to Vegas and saw all these real race cars. And uh, we never even finished the race. I, I don't think we made it past Pahrump and uh, dropped a valve or something. We ended up hitchhiking home with a race team to Reno with the buggy. And uh, that was another story. But uh, so, yeah, I was dabbling around in off-road racing. And... Um, had that love truck for a while and then uh i always wanted a toyota from when they first came out in 79 
and you couldn't get them. And if you could get them, they were like super overpriced and uh, all the dealers were gouging on them. But by 83, that had settled down and I pretty much destroyed this love by that point. And I managed to buy a new Toyota pickup. And that was another brand new one. And uh, that's the truck I had as my daily for uh, when we moved to Arizona. And um, I put 100,000 miles on that thing in about three years. And then I screwed it up. It uh, it was never a hardcore wheeler, but I did put my first winch on that, not, not on the B. I remember that. And uh, then the tranny went out in it when it had about 95,000 miles on it. And that was pretty common on those early Toyotas. And... Um, I had a, I'd been wanting to put a V6 in it, and I ended up sticking a Buick V6 in it with a Turbo 350 in about 1987 and uh, in Arizona and just ruined it. <laughs> it got like 10 miles to the gallon, and it, and it just uh, it, it, it had all kinds of cooling issues and, and electrical issues, and, and just I took a really good little truck and wrecked it. And uh, so I ended up selling that and getting a blazer for my wife. And uh, that was her her driver. And um, so I, I fumbled around with just some crummy commuter cars when I was working for Rick. I had a, a 79 Subaru station wagon that um, I ended up putting a five-inch lift on it. I ran into a guy that worked at Four Wheeler Supply named Kurt Brenmeyer. Don't know why that comes to me. And he had a Subaru Brat with nine inches of lift on it. Wow. And uh, that and then 31s on it. These were the really early little tiny Subarus. And I had this old clapped out wagon and uh, he had a five inch lift sitting around for that. And we put that on it. And I drove that as my commuter car in Phoenix back and forth to Republic every day from the west side of Phoenix. And uh, we hauled all kinds of parts in it and everything else for the for republic and uh, so i had that thing up until i moved back up here and uh then i bought a new 89 chevy short bed pickup when the ifs had first come out and uh i ordered it it's first thing i ever ordered brand new and it was black had a five speed in it get drag five speed and a 350 throttle body and that truck went on it was my became my work truck for uh, my business with all the tools and everything and it way overloaded um that thing uh got worked hard from day one and it, it towed the bee all over the place by then we were doing all these different you know adventures wheeling together long before competitions or anything but i'd, I'd go down to arizona a lot towing the jeep or i'd go in southern california this and that always with all the tools in the thing and, and all the, uh, the Jeep behind it and everything else. Anyway, that truck got used hard. I put like 250,000 miles on it in like six years or something. And that became uh, one of my articles that I did in the mid nineties called IFS no more, where I, uh, I cut all the uh, IFS out of it and put a Dana 60 on the front of it and a 14 in the rear and uh you know there was that that kind of stuff just really wasn't been 
been done yet. Uh, ben Stewart did it around the same time to a truck that he had. He had it professionally done at a shop, and I did mine as a as a backyard hack. And uh, it was a very popular article that I wrote and uh, multi-series thing. And a lot of guys identified with it and uh, how to get rid of that IFS and put straight axles under these trucks. Now so, it's so common. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, then, you know, it was Off-Road Unlimited or one of those companies started making a kit for it shortly after that. And uh, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, well, everything's so changed today. Yes. <laughs> it's funny, this was only in the 90s, which I guess you think back now, that's 25, almost 30 years ago. But um, it, we we seem so so uh archaic <laughs> back then compared to now some of the stuff we were doing but um so let's see that takes us up meanwhile the bee was kind of always there and always morphing um starting in the you know the early 90s you know with the longer leaf springs and the spring over and going to dana 60s in the rear and wide 44s in the front and arbs front and rear and uh of course you know a bigger engine still using carburetors fuel injection wasn't a thing then and i was a staunch stick guy i ran uh, sm420 early gm granny boxes for years and um with an 18 transfer case and the fiberglass body, the flat fender whole thing happened back in 85. The original steel body, I flopped it over too many times, and it was pretty rusty from being a Tahoe Jeep anyway, and uh, the floors were pretty gone out of it. So uh, I swapped it over and made a flat fender out of it in uh, 85, and that was before I moved down to Arizona. So when I first went to Arizona, it was already a flatty, but it was a Malat fiberglass body from lincoln california that body and um so let's see then towards the mid 80s um leaf springs had kind of run their course and uh sunny came along with his little flatty and he had these little hot rod coils under it that uh came from uh, uh from speedway or somewhere it wasn't even a four by four thing they were like stock car coils and I decided that looked like the way to go. And um, so I think it was about 96. I stretched the wheelbase out to 98 inches and did the uh, what became known as the comp cut in the rear, which was basically just an, an ugly way to remove the back of the tub so that the stretched out wheelbase would, would fit and the thing would articulate still. And uh, I was never proud of it, but man, did that take off. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> I think there was a rear shot of the bee on the cover of some magazine around that time showing that comp cut corner pretty prominently. And next thing you knew, everybody did it. <laughs> Wasn't one of my prouder moments. It was, uh, it was that part of the Jeep that was, if it was going to get damaged, that was it. Oh, it was always getting tore up and, and hanged up anyway. And so I just whacked it off finally. And uh, yeah, that, that was a popular thing. And another thing I did to it around that period that um, didn't take off right away was hydraulic steering. And uh, I remember I, 
I decided I, from driving backhoes and being around farm equipment, I you know knew what hydraulic steering was like. And I thought that's got to be the answer for crawling over these rocks and not binding up the steering and everything. And nobody was doing rams or anything at that point. And uh, I remember going around Reno and asking various shops if they could set me up with some kind of a hydraulic steering system. And what, what did I use? What parts did I need? And I went to like two or four places and they just shook their head and said, no way, we're not helping you with that. That's too dangerous. And then uh, I went to this one guy and same story. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I, I can make that work. And he was a sprint car racer. And uh, he just had enough huevos or he didn't care enough to, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, we can make that work. You want to you drive a Jeep with hydraulic steering? And uh, he found me an old double ram, double-ended forklift ram. And um, then we used the Charlene valve and the regular uh, GM pump and put it all together with a bunch of hoses and bingo. I had electric, you know, I had hydraulic steering. And uh, I took that to that. I used that in the early comps and stuff, but I had it before we did the first comps. And everybody thought I was nuts, but everybody couldn't believe how I could steer through things and over things. And it, it just, it was awesome. <laughs> and it was a handful on the highway. Yeah, but, I would imagine. <laughs> you know, it, it walked, the, the steering wheel walked all the time, just like a backhoe does. And um, it darted all over the place constantly. It was, it was quite vague, but I wasn't using it that much on the street at that point. So it really didn't matter. And that, that original system um, carried me through most all the, the comp stuff I did. I remember it broke finally in Montrose in Colorado uh, towards the end of my uh, rock comp career, which we'll get into in a minute. And um, so anyway, that was the end of that. And then by then, um, um, AGR had come along, and uh, which was Tom Allen and, and cronies, and uh, they were doing these RAM systems. And... Uh, they ended up building me a, a, a morphed Bronco and Scout box that would fit the, the bees configurations with a ram. And, of course, that was an, an article I did and kind of helped put the whole hydraulic steering thing on the map. And that parts of that system are still on that rig today. Oh, wow. So that went from, uh, you know, it's still carrying on. But uh, so let's see. Back up a little bit. Um you know, I'd been meeting up with a lot of these guys goofing around all through the 90s, and we were always trying to make a better mousetrap and outdo each other. And then um, Bob Hazel came along with his, his competition thing down in New Mexico. Yep. And I think it was Farmington. And uh, it was just like, hey, let's all go down there and, and uh, do this competition. You know, that's what we've basically been doing all along anyway is competing against each other and just trying to outdo each other and come up with better widgets. And uh, so now we got a, a guy that's organizing it. Okay, that sounds like fun. So we all went down and convened on that. And that, uh, of course, is history. And, um, I, you know, we were, it, it was just amateur hour. And, um, you know, there were no helmets. There were no no safety whatsoever. It was just like what we've been doing for the last seven eight years and just goofing around and going wheeling but maybe without Except a beer in your sudden, hand yeah exactly 
And now there were cones we had to drive around and there were points we had to figure out. And um, I, I, I remember a couple of these early ones, you know, like there was a great video of Randy Ellis rolling over and, you know, beer cans all falling out of his rig. And uh, that was just pretty much the way it was. <laughs> it had been that way all through the 90s. Nothing was really changing except um, the courses. And uh, what was the guy's name? Phil uh, uh, that was laying out those early courses. Um, oh, yeah. Phil Collard. Yeah, Collard. Phil Collard. You know, he was making some really interesting stuff and some really interesting lines and some really difficult things. And um, we were meeting our match and our vehicles were definitely meeting our their match. And, uh, and the, the technology just wasn't there for the uh, these courses he was building. And so momentum was became your friend. And uh, I had spent the better part of 25 years of wheeling at that point, um, trying to uh, master what I call mechanical ballet. And, and that's a term that was uh, originally coined by Mark Vaughn in uh, Auto Week. And I just remember that was just a great way of describing what I thought proper rock crawling should be, which was, was a dance with the vehicle and you never spun a tire. You tried not to lift a tire. You just mechanically balleted your way over these obstacles and stuff. And, and it was, it was a, it was a beautiful sight when you got it right. And it was just effortless. And you just did this little dance through these rocks with this machine. And, and uh, of course, when the comps came along, bam, that went out the window. And it was mainly because we didn't have the equipment to match the uh, the terrain. Uh, the technology just wasn't there yet. And uh, the, I, I'll, my hat's off to the guys doing it today, you know, Jesse and all of those. And they, they've got mechanical ballet for sure. Oh, it sure is. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, in spades. But uh, look at the, the equipment and where it's gone and what they're doing with that now. Um, in those days, we were just... <laughs> It was amateur hour, and it was it was momentum and uh, putting on a show, and the crowds loved it. And um, but it bothered me. And um, the other thing that really bothered me and uh, was uh, there were a million people making videos in those days. VHSs were all the rage, and every amateur with a camera was making a, a video and selling it in the on the infancy of internet and this and that. And it was showing us at our absolute worst is how I saw it. And um, I wrote a column about this. You and I may have butted heads about this. We did. <laughs> we did in and, Moab. <laughs> um, I know there were some, uh, some great stickers made and I wish I had one that was a, a red slash, yep. you know, like with uh, no bacon. <laughs> and there was either bacon or there were there was a strip of bacon with a slash through it and i i took a stand i had i had in my own column in uh off-road adventures with um dennis snow in those days right called rasher, rasher of bacon and i took a uh took a stand after about two maybe two and a half years of doing it and um and i was always up in the top top five um, I don't think I ever won anything off, you know, overall or anything, but I just said, you know, guys, 
we're, we're just uh, we're going about this wrong. We're just showing ourselves at our absolute worst. And everybody's making videos and selling this to everybody. And um, we're uh, we're tearing up all our favorite spots. And uh, we're just handing, I think I put it, we're handing bullets to uh, the environmentalists and stuff to shoot, shoot us with. Yep. And what really, my solution, I offered a solution was to, you know, put this stuff in a controlled environment. And uh, that was coming from my background in racing at that point, sports car racing, where you uh, are on a, on a track in a controlled environment. And that stems back to where sports car racing started in the after World War II and GIs came home and realized European cars could corner and American cars couldn't and they could turn both ways and not just go fast in a straight line. And, and a lot of that early sports car racing was done on uh, – Street circuits, road racing circuits, uh, you know, the Pebble Beach races in uh, Del Monte Forest were famous for that. And a lot of people got killed, spectators. And um, then they started building dedicated tracks. That's how Laguna Seca got started was uh, because too many people got killed in the Del Monte Forest in Monterey. Anyway, so that I was coming off of that mentality and that, you know, we really need to put this stuff in a controlled environment and uh not out on our favorite trails you know like you know choke cherry and uh god in all the places we were doing at montrose and anyway um it fell it, it all shook out as it shook out you know it just maybe i was a little ahead of my time but um i just i took a stance and said i'm not going to do this anymore and because this is just uh against my 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 feelings and um of course the sport went on it, it kind of had its peak and i i think the uh the technology that came out of it is phenomenal and um all the stuff we were just making by hand from old truck parts and stuff you know now you can just go down and buy them all and uh a lot of that also happened you know is also from the oes you know taking notice of what was going on and uh, developing much better products for the everyday consumer. And uh, hence the TJ, of course I'm talking about the TJ and uh, the Rubicon. Right. That's on from that. And then of course the JK from that. And uh, that's a whole nother story. (laughs) So that's all. Where should we go from here? Well, (laughs) I can remember the first time that I met you. And it was on Pritchett Canyon. I was living in Cedar City at the time. And I was Mm -hmm. there with the Color Country Four-Wheel Drive Club. Guys like Dean Bullock and, you know, um, Doc. Phenomenal driver. Yeah. yeah. Dean Dean was amazing. Absolutely. And we we came up behind you guys and it was you. I want to say it was Walker. Could have been. And... um, Sunny, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And there was a couple others. And somebody pointed out, that's Ned. And it was after <laughs> your article. Ah. And I was like, like, that asshole. And I go, okay, I need to talk to him. <laughs> ah. Wow. Cool. I don't remember this, but carry on. <laughs> but we were we were just above um you guys had just cleared every, oh, Tim Hardy was with you. Um okay. And he was from, you know, the my stomping grounds, Placerville area. Sure. Oh, so, yeah. No, well. So 
after you guys got done playing there on Rocker Knocker and uh, mm-hmm. before you got up to Rock Pile, um, okay. I I walked up the hill and we, we had a discussion about, you know, your article. And, you know, I, I have to say at that point, I didn't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was uh, we had a great conversation. Alone. <laughs> no, I know <laughs> that I know, <laughs> and uh, you know it. Uh, it was that's the first time that that you and I met personally and uh, okay. and had a talk. Now I may have seen you on the Rubicon in the eighties because I started doing the Rubicon in like eighty three. Okay, early sure. eighty three, late eighty two. Probably did. But uh, that was, uh, you know, I might, mean, might have bought a T-shirt from us on Fourth of July. Quite um, possibly, somewhere in there. We used to go up there every Fourth of July. I was part of the uh, Flat Fenders Four by Four Club out of Placerville. That was uh, Kate Noli Olson, uh-huh. and those guys. And we used to sell T-shirts that I drew every Fourth uh, of July in, in little sleeves, and uh, we'd camp there back when you could, and. Uh, We'd, we'd sell all these shirts to everybody. It kind of became a thing. And uh, we'd take all the proceeds, and then we did this uh, Christmas drive every year for the elderly in Placerville with the money from the, that the club had. And uh, we'd go around and buy foodstuffs and clothing and stuff for the elderly that couldn't, uh, couldn't take care of themselves kind of thing. That's awesome. And, uh, so, yeah, we did all these crazy T-shirts for, oh, I don't know, 10 years anyway. I think we were doing those. I, every once in a while, one still surfaces. <laughs> some greasy old tattered things. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, I don't remember our, our Pritchett encounter. but uh, You probably had, had a lot of, of conversations yeah. like that at that time. <laughs> uh-huh. I did. I did. <laughs> but um, it's all good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's all it's all gone where it's gone, and um, I continued to work for the magazines and write stuff and and branch out in a lot of different uh, venues since then. And um, so you know, stopping the competition stuff didn't really bother me all that much. Plus, by then, things really needed to you needed to build a rig that was dedicated right to strictly doing comps. And I had always had that damn killer bee. I still have it. And it had always been my one and only wheeler. And um, I just kept redoing it, remodifying it, rebuilding it. The only thing left of that original Jeep that I bought in high school, are the two main frame rails, which are still unaltered front to back, uh, bumper to bumper. Although I took a 58 Willys frame and took all the cross members out of it. And this was back in the, I don't know, late eighties, nineties and sandwiched the, uh, you know, the, the rails from the, the 58 frame into the 60 frame and basically boxed the whole thing and then did different cross members. But the outer part of that frame are still the original rails from that Jeep I bought. And then uh, part of the tailgate, the Willie's tailgate, which has the killer B logo on it that I painted back in the eighties. Um, that's still there and the serial number and that's it. That's, that's all, (laughs) all that's there. And actually probably the Jeep that I used as my comp rig in the late nineties there, I don't think there's really anything left of that in the vehicle I have today either. So it continued to morph and, and grow and 
go on to other things, um, including racing it three times in the Nora 1000 in Baja in more recent years. It's done that and um, a bunch of other things. And it's got an LS in it now and a L480E and Dynatrax under it. And of course, it's on 40s and coilovers. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that happened after the competitions. You know, like like I'm saying, we 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 were pretty primitive in those early days. Yes, yeah, we, we were. 35-inch <laughs> boggers and still running Dana 44s in the front and breaking them right and left. And um, I don't think I put an automatic in it until the very end of my comp days. Um, I was still doing it all with a stick. So, you know, I was definitely just there in the very early parts of this stuff. Right. And then uh, it went on from there. And uh, so let's see, where do we go from there as far as as Ned and his career? Um, I continued doing magazine work all through the first part of the millennia. Um, got remarried to Kat. Um, everybody knows Kat these days, my, uh, my wife and, and partner in crime. Well, we all have uh, a better half. She's definitely a better half. She's a jewel. Um, I met my match with that one. And, uh, so she's, she's been right in there with all, all my wheeling and all my sport, you know, Porsche racing and everything else. Um, so right up until like, well, 2010 was a big change. Uh, my dad passed away in a car accident actually, but, um, sort of suddenly, and I pretty much had to put the brakes on everything I was doing and, come and take care of his ranching operation. And at that point he had four ranches and lots of employees and lots of cows and lots of everything. And, uh, he, uh, he didn't really have his ducks in a row. We'd been, he was 83 at the time and we'd been on him for a long time to get his affairs in order. And he had drug his feet and didn't. And, uh, then he got in this accident, which he caused. And, um, Suddenly we had, you know, this, this massive ranching operation and nobody there to run it. And um, I pretty much had to just put the brakes on everything I was doing and step in and uh, run this ranch and deal with a bunch of lawsuits and um, all kinds of things that were a fallout from this event. And uh, that was kind of the end of my writing career. And uh, I kind of, once again, got lucky. I got in it at the right time, and I think I got out of it at the right time. Um, things were, you know, the magazine world was falling apart, and uh, I think a lot of the writing was falling apart. A lot of the editing was falling apart, I think, um, at least with the mainstream books. Right. And uh, guys were just writing things on their cell phones, and, and while they're on a plane from one thing to another, and nobody was editing it. And, uh, I was, I was, I was pretty upset to see some of the stuff I read in the, in that, that time frame. It was just, uh, I always prided myself in trying to have a, you know, using proper English and, you know, complete sentences and proper punctuation and, and, uh, you know, carrying through in a, in a proper format. And, uh, it, that was all kind of going away. And, uh, I'm not saying that's, 
true with you know we've got a lot of niche books now especially like yours that are beautifully done and uh but you know the main luckily i married a really good editor (laughs) yeah (laughs) well it makes a difference and i think it's important and uh so anyway i you know i had to kind of fortunately i you know i was always freelance so i always called my own shots and um i had uh developed a lot of different techniques that i used my before and after stuff we didn't even talk about that but that was something i started in the 90s um with uh, suspension installs and stuff and it was something that bothered me early on was um the magazines in the 80s and stuff if you if they were talking about a, a product like suspension they would generally rewrite the instruction book if they wrote anything about it and i came in there and i thought you know either are going to read the instructions if you're going to install it yourself. So you don't need to re- read about that in a magazine, or you're going to take your rig to a shop and you're going to have them do it. And you don't really care what it, what it's like to, what it takes to install the thing. What right. you want to know is what's this product going to do on my vehicle and how's it going to be different. And, uh, that was the, my beginning of my before and after series is that I did and I did a lot of them with just about every suspension manufacturer in various vehicles and um, I would take a, a stock truck out and and drive it around over a course that I'd laid out same course all the time had various spots where I could shoot different um, articulation angles and breakover angles and this and that and I'd shoot all these pictures before and after and i'd take the truck in the shop and i'd put the lift on it put whatever it was and and then take it out and reshoot it and redrive it over the same things and and write a whole thing about my observations and comments on how it how it performed differently and and i would highlight any kind of situation i came across in the shop with difficulty with installs and that kind of thing and try to be honest with the reader and not hurt the uh, manufacturer too badly and um it worked and it it's it was a format that was picked up by others and i think it's still used quite a bit today but um that was something that i uh kind of was proud of doing that um but anyway back up into the the last decade um like I say, I, I feel I kind of got out of it at the right time. I, I was there for the, the digital age with, with photography, which sure made things a lot easier than the old transparencies that we used to do. But um, the the writing, you know, on, on iPhones and tablets and whatever and just cranking things out without a lot of great editorial just really kind of bothered me. And uh, so I was kind of glad to step away from it. And it took... Uh, several years to straighten out the whole family situation and everything and eventually we ended up selling he had four ranches when he died and we sold two of them and leased the other two out which i'm still working with today and i have them leased and of course there was the car collection to deal with and take care of and but around 2013 the dust sort of settled down and uh cat and i looked at each other and we always wanted to do travel in a vehicle. And um, we have this uh, great VW bus named Charlotte. It's it's a VW Vanagon Synchro, which is a four-wheel drive version of a VW van factory thing. And of course, I've modified the heck out of it. But um, 
in 2014, we took off in Charlotte and uh, drove her all the way to the tip of South America and uh, basically lived in the thing for all in all. After we did South America, I shipped her back from Santiago, Chile to uh, Long Beach, and then we were home for a little bit, and then we drove it all the way to uh, Prudhoe Bay to the top of Alaska. That's a dead horse and um, all points in between. All in all, it was about a 40,000 mile trip and we basically lived in this VW van for two years straight. And um, great adventure. I think the greatest adventure of it ever. And uh, met some great people, um, ate some great food, saw some amazing country and uh, definitely sparked up the old uh, travel bug again. And uh, she's she's the perfect uh, companion for that kind of stuff. So we've uh, we've done a lot of shorter stuff since then, um, all over this country and all over Mexico. And we were actually slated to ship the van to Europe uh, just before this COVID stuff started. And uh, I had a container lined up and everything else, and we were going to send her to Europe and then spend uh, several years doing all you know all the outlying parts of Europe and the Eastern Bloc countries that are all aflame now and um, who knows where that would have gone I'd, I'd even considered driving her all the way across to the east through the stands in Mongolia and all the way to Magadan uh, Russia it's kind of on our radar and uh, and then this COVID nonsense came along and uh, <laughs> kind of put the brakes on that. I pulled the plug on that container just in time. So we've kind of been in a holding pattern for the last couple of years. And meanwhile, I mean, I certainly can't complain. We live a great life and uh, we're still still doing a lot of uh, charity work. We're, we're involved with uh, one uh, outfit and particular which is called free wheelchair mission that uh we're really much behind it's it's a non-profit that uh donates wheelchairs to the poorest of the poor all over the world and we've done numerous distributions with them uh, uganda and uh, for instance vietnam uh, uh, el salvador um, putting putting wheels underneath people that have spent their lives crawling in the dirt and uh it's a it's a something near and dear to my heart, and uh, it's something that's been uh, it's 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 just up my alley, you know, putting wheels under people. It's right. kind of kind of cool. <laughs> it is absolutely. So, so yeah, we've been doing that. Um, I'm involved with the National Automobile Museum up in Reno, which is the old Harris collection. I'm on the board up there, and uh, so we're busy. Um, I'm still racing Porsches quite a bit, <laughs> and uh, we race uh, the Nora race every year. We've done that like nine times down in Baja, which is kind of like vintage off-road racing. Uh, we just got back from doing the 22 one in our. Uh, we've got a Class Five bug that I built up um, from a, a vintage car that was built originally in the 90s, and uh, just had a great run down the peninsula never took a tool out of the bag for five days Woo-hoo. very good and uh, we ended up getting second in class by uh eight minutes we lost eight minutes to first place after 1300 miles and <laughs> five days of racing to a, a mexican team out in Ensenada. so that was really cool though that they won i was happy to see that they uh, 
they got to win in their own country. So it's all good. So, um, yeah, that kind of brings us up to date. So are yeah. you still, want, are you still want to take that, that synchro across to Europe and, and make that? I mean, yes. I, I know that right now yes. things no. are kind of screwed up. Yeah. You know, the, the world has just gotten so sketchy. Yeah. And, um, I definitely do. I'm really itching to get out there again and live that lifestyle. It was, it was so different from anything I've ever done. It just became a way of life. Just it was so simple. Um, kind of like what Randy Ellis is up to, you know, it's just, you'd, you'd get up and get up in the morning and it was just like, what am I going to do? Where are we going to go today? You know, we never had any plan. It was like, just had to figure out where to get food and where to get gasoline. And, uh, we took the, the back roads everywhere we could and stayed off the Pan Am highway. Um, we're mountain people, not beach people. So we didn't, you know, tend to focus much on the beaches and the and surfing or anything like that. We stayed up in the all through the Andes and lots of lots of mountains, little villages and dirt roads. Um, as the crow flies from uh, Prudhoe Bay to Yeshua is like ten thousand miles, and we turned it into forty. So, a lot of circuitous routes. So I would love to do that more. Um, I'd like to go. I've been to Europe multiple times but uh, it's been a long time really and uh, i've never been to a lot of the outlying parts of europe and um, balkans and macedonia and that type of stuff um i've seen a lot of asia southeast asia um i think i'm kind of over that but um you know part a lot of big chunk of crossing uh the globe east to west or west to east is is russia and uh that's kind of sketchy right now yes it is and then if it's not russia then it's china which is even sketchier that's sketchy too and i've been to china and i have no desire to ever go back there okay um and uh so that's that's not really on it but so i i'm i'm toning that poor old charlotte is she's getting up there that that van has seen more than any any VW van is really designed <laughs> to do. So logically, at this point, I think we'd be smarter just buying something in Europe and keeping it over there, and uh, going back and forth maybe and doing shorter trips instead of just diving in and living. One long so, epic trip, yeah. Yeah, and one big long epic trip, and especially in a vehicle that's already done a lot of epic. And uh, so I think we're leaning more that way, but we're sort of still just in a holding pattern as to uh, where this crazy world's going right now. Well, I can tell you, you know, going back to things that you talked about earlier, your museum, I would really like to hook up with you and do a tour. Absolutely. So I'm going to, I don't know what kind of schedule you do. I don't, my schedule is always all over the place, especially this time of year. Um, fall and winter is when I have more time. That's not um, a problem. I mean, dead of winter, it's it's cold up here. It's right. snow, and these buildings are not heated or anything. They're, uh, <clears throat> but you know, we all got big coats. Yes. So I'm 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 game anytime, Rich. Okay. Um, I've got one. I'm doing one this Thursday, and I've got another one next week. I think I just did a few. I just mentioned earlier. Um, so. Uh, 
Come on up here anytime. Now you're in uh, Texas. You in Corpus Christi still? Or? We that's that's what we're calling our home base right now. Um, especially right. in the off season. You know, during okay. the rock crawling season, we're we're constantly on the move in sure. the Taj Mahal or the semi truck. But um, right now, for the last month nearly, we've been in Placerville. We got another week or two here, and then we got to finish up our season. And then after the Rebel Rally. But I'll be here another two weeks, well, so maybe I'll say, you're, talk you're to my wife, and maybe we'll get in, right in sooner. <laughs> I drove through Placerville this weekend. Yeah. I mean, hop, hop on over. <laughs> I think so, because I've got some friends in uh, Dayton um, that uh, where we always stay, too. So, you know, maybe well, you're we'll... you're more than welcome to stay at our house, too. Um, the, the museum tour, if you will, it, it's anywhere from three to five hours, depending on how... Uh, I'm interested you are, and um, you should come over and just uh, stay with us, and we've got a guest room and all, and uh, just come on over. Okay. I'll talk to the wife when got she gets back. immediate family members are interested, bring them too. Yeah, it would just and, be my wife and I. Perfect. Perfect. Bring them on. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these things are just – they're, they're not, I don't consider them mine. You know, they're still tied up in the family estate and uh, my mom's still alive with us. Fortunately, um, she's uh, 93, 94 now or whatever. So I'm kind of hanging on to all that as well. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep them forever. Um, but I'm just kind of boots on the ground and curator and lucky enough to to have these things to share with people and what good are they if you can't share them with somebody so uh, absolutely and yeah, what's the, what do you name it and can we find it online nope nope okay. nope nope i won't even put that out there because security is so tough yeah that makes and, sense uh, everybody nowadays has to tell everybody about everything and uh i'm very old-fashioned that way i, okay. I kind of try to keep to myself and keep it quiet and of course I, we just did this whole thing, which is which, which is great. I mean, I, I feel honored to be a part of this whole deal you've been putting on. It's it's great to watch them and and hear a lot of people that I know already and hear their backstories. And a lot of it I don't know the details of. And you know, I haven't been out in the limelight in quite a while now. Uh, I didn't even go to Moab this year. Um, and the, the bee hasn't really been out stretching its legs either. Um, I get, I got involved with Mahindra a couple of years ago with their Roxor project, and uh, we ended up I ended up racing a Roxor for them in both the Sonora Rally and the Nora 1000. And uh, get, I know some of you listening have seen our what happened with that Roxor during COVID. Um, actually, after uh, Mahindra got their uh, their media blitz out of it that I promised them, they pretty much said, okay, do whatever you want with this thing. And I ended up putting a 49 CJ3A body on it and shortening it up. And it's been uh, dubbed pig pen. <laughs> and uh, Payway did a, did a little video on it in Colorado a couple years ago for his, uh, what's his, uh, what's their, their current little thing that they're doing. Um, the name has escaped me now. Yeah. What a dirt. It's, it's not the dirt every day. Cause of course that's Fred. Right. And, uh, another guy I got in this industry <laughs> for better or for worse for him. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, oh heck jeeping gone jeeping. That's it. 
Yeah, uh, Rick and Tracy's deal. And uh, yeah, he did a, a neat little uh, interview with me with Pigpen. So yeah, the last couple of years, my wheeling has sort of just been in, involving this this flat, ratty flatty thing, which of course is a movement nowadays too. And uh, you got all these guys embracing beat up flat fenders, and that's become a new thing in the in the business. But um, I don't know. We haven't even gotten into that whole side of things. <laughs> exactly. That's on that's on my uh, my list of of wants. As soon as we get done retired here, um, we got somebody that's going to be taking over the rock crawling events for us now, and okay. we're going to be stepping aside. I plan on getting a shop and you know setting up a a workspace, and I'm going to you know. I'm going to get a flat fender. I'm going to find another fifties bug and you know, you the, the kind you of go. things that I've always wanted to build. I'm get, That's what I'm going to do. Good for you. you know? Good for you. And then live on the boat. <laughs> well, I, I, I listened to uh, Randy Ellis's podcast and uh, yeah, I heard about your boat, boat dreams. Yes. And uh, I think that's wonderful. Good for you. It's just more power to you. Um, I, my hat's off to Randy and what he's done too. I've, I've known him a long, long, long time and watched him come up from a high school kid to, you know, when he was thriving with, uh, Randy Ellis design and everything and to where he just pulled the plug at a, at a ripe young age and said, you know, this isn't what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And I'm going to do it. Yeah. And Randy has always been a guy that, uh, when he says he's going to do it, he does it. And, uh, he does it Randy's way, and I, I, that's just awesome. That's what it should be. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. you know, Ned, I'm going to say thank you so much for for coming on board and spending a couple hours and talking to me and and sharing, you know, your life with uh, our listeners. And um, definitely going to talk to my wife about coming up and uh, taking a look at the the museum and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I really appreciate you spending this time. Well, it's been fun. I really enjoy it. And uh, hi to everybody out there. I'm, I'm still around. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just keeping quiet. And um, anyway, give me a holler in the next uh, week or so, and let's put something together. All right. Sounds good, Ned. I appreciate Great, it. Thank you. All right. Thanks okay. so much. All right. Talk Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Big Rich. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Let us know what you think of Conversations with Big Rich. Please forward ideas to me, contacts of those that I should attempt to interview, leave a rating on any of the services you found us on. We look forward to your comments and ideas. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and grab all the gusto you can.